Welcome to part two of episode 42 of the Fiduciary U podcast with Michael Dozier from T. Rowe Price. We cover a lot of great info in part one, so make sure to check it out. Now, listen to part two, where we continue our discussion on large market consulting and product trends. I hope you enjoy it. What, um, what do you see? There, there, there's another slide we have here around um, DC market focus and then expertise uh, create differentiation. Um, just when I kind of saw this, you know, in, in part the move towards specialization, um, but a lot of, uh, and, and obviously scale fees. It's so funny. You hear people talk about like fees, funds, and fiduciary is dead. Like I don't agree with that at all. In fact, I think, um, if anything with the litigation, like those are still like the building blocks that you build your fiduciary house upon, but the ability to negotiate fees through scale, um, service models, the independent story. So what do you see that these firms are doing to try to differentiate from their peers where everybody kind of says, we do the same thing? Yeah. That, so I think a couple of things on this one, Josh, your, your comment about the triple F and whether that's irrelevant anymore or not, it's that I would laugh at that, right? It is, it's just the building blocks. It's the cost of admission, right? But if you're trying to differentiate your firm, assuming you've got those kind of basic um, core components of your business figured out, how do you look different than the shop down the block or across the country for you? Because again, because of digitalization and, and virtual nature, I think the competitive landscape from a nationwide standpoint has even begun to blend further down. I don't think there's as much geographic nature to any of the way plans are shopped anymore. I mean, right. the further down you go, clearly that changes. But um, if you look at this, I think a couple of things. One, specialization in the DC space. Um, you can't hang your hat there because a lot of these firms have hired and built out and dedicated very you know DC-centric resumes and services. Important to have the capability, but from a differentiation standpoint, there's not much to hang your hat on there. I think what I would uh, suggest that firms do that are trying to work on their value proposition and think about how they're bringing themselves to market is maybe look down in the less um, competitive numbers on a slide like this and think about things like if you believe ESG is a building momentum and how you integrate that into your practice for investment selection, maybe there's some opportunity there because those numbers are still relatively low. I'm shocked at how low some of the numbers are on a more sophisticated AI data centric model. Look at how you're analyzing participant or even plan sponsor data and and make better suggestions for the future of the plan and the direction it's heading. I know I've heard you, Josh, mention multiple times that you shouldn't be driving the bus by looking at the rearview mirror, but looking forward and where things are going. I think the analytics side of the business is clearly the new frontier and making sure that you're thinking about how all of that, you know, delivers a better mousetrap from a products and services offering, whether at the plan level or at the participant level, because convergence is driving a focus on financial wellness, which is driving a focus on cross-selling services and opportunities outside of the traditional DC plan. Yeah, when I looked at this, I thought, um, you know, and I'm friends with a lot of the leaders of a good number of the firms in the study, but it was interesting. I, I thought that that um, these top four, um, it felt like 
an older playbook. It felt like something we were talking about five or 10 years ago. Um, you know, definitely the trend towards specialization, but like everybody's specialized that they, they tell that story. One of them was like having a superior service model. And that's one of the things I think advisors and consultants, like they want to sell around. Here's what we do. I think that's a, a backwards looking way as opposed to here's how what we do is going to achieve. This is where we want to take you in the future um, because everybody's service model is going to look the same when everybody looks the same and says they do the same things. Well, how do you demonstrate whether you're superior or not? It's really about the outcomes you achieved. And then even the independence from apparent conflicts of interest, you know, typically I would probably say that's around fiduciary, but like every one of these firms that is in this study, like that's not a, being a fiduciary isn't a differentiator anymore. Um, the real question comes down to who's the most effective fiduciary. What is it about your process, your methodology, your approach, your insights, your technological capabilities, your, you know, um, deployment of your intellectual capital. Like how does that separate you from other firms, your ability to, you know, drive change over time. So I just thought this was an interesting slide. I agree with you. Like I wouldn't want to go and compete where everybody else is competing. I'd, 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 you know, um, I kind of think about those four things. It's like, it's like, you know, fishing in a pond that's been overfished instead of like looking down, are there areas, um, where you can fish in a stock pond basically? Yeah, I think, Josh, one thing I would I would say to close this one out, which I think is really interesting, that whole independence of conflict. <clears throat> think about the there's a big division between some of these firms that, again, are more historically advisor centric versus consulting. Mm -hmm. And if on the advisor side, there is a, a leaning now and it clearly looks like it's manifest itself in this data to building out products and services that are literally white labeled with your name on it, whether that's a managed account or a retirement income product or in financial wellness, cross-selling some other more traditionally wealth-oriented products. Some of the firms that aren't making those decisions might scratch their head and look across the table and say, well, how do you stay free of conflict of interest if in fact you're pursuing that strategy? And some of the firms that are doing that would say, we're clear and we're clean with our process and our comp and all those, you know, kind of questions and tests you ask from a kind of a RISA fiduciary or legality standpoint, yeah. but that's a raging debate right now where some of these firms are talking about things very differently from a conflict of interest yeah. standpoint. And, and I actually do think that I, I appreciate you bringing it up because I do think that's a, you know, a fair point. I mean, I'm, I was always more of, I would say kind of a purist. Um, but you know, so much of this comes down to, I think the, 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 if I look at that independence from apparent conflicts of interest, like I think the oper the operable word right there is apparent, right? Um, perceived versus versus actual. And at the end of the day, you know, it's it's probably who tells that story either for or against most effectively when they're sitting in front of the plan sponsor. Um, so interesting, interesting data points. Um, another thing, let's just briefly touch on uh, on PEPs. Um, there was some data that came out. I mean, I would argue that this is uh, probably much ado about nothing so far in terms of uh, of actual 
uh, adoption and utilization. Maybe not, you know, we talked before we started recording about, you know, how many firms now, I think it's more of like, hey, we gotta, we gotta have a tool in the toolbox like everybody else. Um, there's a lot of registration of PEPs, but whether they're actually highly perceived from a plan sponsor perspective, and therefore, are they actually getting implemented adoption? Are they getting flow? Or is it more of like, you know, it's like my, my treadmill I have in the basement. Yeah, I got a treadmill, but like my shirts hang from it right now. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's truth on both sides of that equation, Josh. I mean, if you look at the registration numbers and you look at the intent of these 38 firms, it's growing, right? I think it's, it's popped over 400 PPPs are registered now on the DOL website. That's a big number. You look at these firms, of these 38 firms, between already committed or intend to do something, it's over half of these firms. So yeah. there's a lot of action. I think you're also you know, spot on in that we haven't seen a lot of adoption. Some firms that have figured the process out would tell you they've, they've been selling dozens, if not hundreds of these, mostly in the smaller plan space, in the micro and almost startup plan space. But with that, um, a couple of isolated exceptions, it looks like it's, again, kind of a lot of noise, but not a lot of action. I do think it brings up a larger point around aggregation. And whether it's PEP or now the world of MEPS is much more open and conducive to plans joining or MEAPS or even just operational aggregation opportunities. I think if I'm if I'm an advisor running my own practice and thinking about these implications for me, I'd take that big step back and just look at aggregation broadly speaking, look at those hurdles that are listed here on this slide as to why plan sponsors would either be fearful of it or hesitant to go down that path, or what would be an incentive to go down that path and just reflect on your practice and see if there's something there that you wanna pursue. Right now, it does look like it's one of those me too exercises, but could be building to something more meaningful over time as you know, aggregation as a term has you know, started to change the marketplace more broadly. Yeah, and, and I think you know, looking at probably long-term trends. I mean, there definitely is an opportunity, but I even, you know, it's interesting in your data where you, where we talked earlier about this move towards delegation and the 338, you know, 338 is not a new concept. Heck, I wrote about the value, you know, we, I was a 338 back in 2006, 2007 in my first book, Fixing the 401k. I talked all about like the benefit of a 338. You know, we're looking at 15 years later and you're starting to see comfort and you know, more adoption of that. But it's not like it's something that's, you know, it, the, a lot of these trends, whether it's guaranteed income, whether it's PEPs, whether it's 338, as you said earlier, um, you know, things typically start in the large market and kind of roll down. I think when you look at this data around PEPs, um, seems like there's very little interest uh, from large plans. This might be one of those ones where it goes more bottom up from from top down. But I think the key thing here and, and for advisors who are listening is, you know, it takes time for trends and product and service ideas to take root. Um, in many cases, not a year or two, but, you know, a decade or more. And so, you know, I always think about like Microsoft, like Microsoft has been very skilled at times, like they don't typically create markets and they're not typically like, early entrance into markets, they let them shake out and then 
they build something awesome and they come in and use their scale and kind of dominate. And I would just say for advisors and advisory firms, be careful of, I got to go invest a ton, ton of time and effort and money and resources in, you know, solutions too early. Um, be aware of them, um, start to think about strategy, but, you know, you don't always need to be first to market um, in things, especially if it's going to take time to get adopted. So um, I think if it was me and I was still doing this, I think I'd probably be either in the considering, um, probably in the considering, not that I thought I would have used it a lot, but I'd want to have it in the toolbox so that if I came against a competitor talking about it, I could say, yeah, we do that too, but here's why I don't think it's right for you, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, all right, let's, um, let's, let's shift maybe a little bit. We've got, you know, a, a few more areas to cover. Um, but to shift more around kind of products and services and trends, uh, what's happening at the participant level. And, you know, we see here, uh, just what are you seeing from the trend of, uh, assets remaining in plan, um, post-severance, post-retirement? Yeah, Josh, I think this is one of the biggest areas. So let me be clear about what we're looking at here. We're going to focus on the right-hand side of this chart and not the left-hand side. And it is not survey data. This is one where we went over to our record-keeping platform, which has a couple of million participants on it. And we asked a question of that uh, record-keeping team, what's happening with people's assets after they terminate from the plan if they're 65 or older, right? Mm -hmm. So while they might not be listed as retired, technically speaking, they've separated service and they're over 65. And what's happening with that money one year later, two years later, and three years later? And it doesn't take a, you know, a, a data analyst to figure out this chart, right? You take a big step back, even with blurry eyes, you'll see the significant lower left, upper right trend. Mm -hmm. What that basically says is, as of the most recent folks that retired, that we can track it one year later, that's the people that retired or separated service in 2021, 56% of those folks a year later still, I'm sorry, 58% of those folks a year later still have their money in plan. So over half a year later. If you, tra if you track that from left to right, the 2020 retirees, two years later, still 51% of those folks have their money in plan. Two years later, right? When you're retired, two years is a lot of time, right? It's not, can't imagine it's that they haven't had time to think about it. It's two full years later and they're still there. And then three years later for the 2019 retirees, it's still 48%, yeah. right? So I've looked at this data off and on. I've worked for several record keeping platforms in my career and these numbers are significantly higher than I've ever seen. Now, what we don't know is why, right? This is just a observed data. And I've had in the conversations as, as we've talked about this data, I've had all kinds of a range of responses, right? The most salient of which to me feels like, with exception of the last month or two and the spring of 2020, for the last decade plus, every time they've looked at their account balance online, or if people still get statements and look at those things, the news has been good, right? I mean, it's been a long run. So as my dad would have said in Oklahoma when I was a kid, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? I think some of that's going on in here. 
But if you notice, the uptick started in 2015, 2016, which, is, if you recall, was when the first fiduciary rule started to mm-hmm. kind of rattle around in the marketplace. So I think there's more going on than that. I think plan sponsors and advisors in general are considering stay in plan as a maybe more realistic option. I think we all know that the reason why the vast majority of assets used to roll out within a year or two of retirement was from a personal service delivery, that one-on-one advisory relationship that a lot of these people turn to in this complex stage of life of figuring out the drawdown strategy, you can't replicate that inside of a DC plan, historically speaking. I think now there's a lot of advisors and consultant firms are saying, how can I help plan sponsors maybe think about that a little bit more and and at least make the offer more robust? Right. No, I think that's, and and we'll talk about that a little bit more. One thing I do want to highlight actually on this slide, it's actually the left-hand side, and I'll just make a quick little comment is, you know, you, you, you hear certain corners of the country and and usually kind of outside the industry talking about how, you know, DC plans, the 401k is kind of a failed experiment and all of this. But I actually think this data, you know, do DC participants report more financial progress than their peers? I actually think, you know, this data absolutely shows why we need to increase coverage. You know, 84% of DC participants were saving for retirement through their workplace. If I were, if, if they were a a participant in a DC plan, 84%. Um, if they were eligible, but non-participating, you know, uh, 30%. Um, but then some other things here, like I just look at like the financial peace of mind, the behavioral emotional, um, you know, 80%, if I read this right, 80% of participants, um, how am I reading that? 80% yep. of participants expressed financial peace of mind if they were participating in their workplace retirement plan. Um, only 56, 57% of people, if they either didn't have ac- access, so a coverage issue, or they weren't actually participating, which again, I think goes back and supports why we shouldn't be doing things like sweeps and, and um, getting aggressive around automatic features to get more people participating. They're going to be saving. They're going to be saving for retirement, for emergencies, and they're going to feel more confident about the progress they're making than if they're not. Yeah, Josh, since you brought it up, I think you've exposed a couple of really important points. To me, someone who's been inside the retirement plan industry for 30 years, I look at some of this data and go, blinding flash of the obvious, right? Because people have been saving week in, week out, month in, month out over all those working years, of course they feel better, right? But I think you're right. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that are still casting stones at whether the DC workplace retirement plan industry is a success or a failure. I think this just proves that it's a raging success. Now, are there challenges? Absolutely. And going after more coverage seems to be akin to making people sit in a better place from a self-satisfaction and ready for retirement when just when you would want your elderly population to be in a state of comfort, at least on the issue from a financial perspective. So I, I do believe this affirms that. I think that little nuance you were picking up on the fact that eligible non-participating people are actually lower than people that don't even have access to right. a plan. There's something going on there that I think ought to be informing some of our design thinking. And maybe it does get back to that simple 
keep pushing auto features, keep doing full re-enrollments and, and make sure everybody has to, you know, kind of go through that experience. I, I think it's obvious that maybe some people that have chosen not to participate might have larger issues at play that we don't even, you know, can't understand from looking at data like this, but there's something there. And I do believe you're right. It does tell a story about what DC plans more broadly deployed can do for people's financial well-being and their peace of mind. Right. Absolutely. All right. So let's kind of shift. Um, and, and this kind of the back end, I know we, we I kind of jumped backwards on this real quick and I apologize about that. But, you know, we're seeing this trend, as you said, over, you know, one, two, three year post, um, you know, post retirement, post severance that assets are staying in the plan. This kind of data here is really kind of highlighting, if I look at it as maybe a combination of uh, access to lower costs by remaining in plan and also a broader kind of fiduciary architecture oversight um, by staying in plan. What do you see when you look at the data here in terms of, um, you know, why retired participants are choosing to stay yeah. in plan? Yeah, I think, I, Josh, I think this slide is is a tale of two cities. I think you, you picked up on the first one. If you look at the top, both from advisors slash consultants and plan sponsors, the the I think the big item is lower cost, right? I mean, a lot of retirement plan advisors have worked hard over the years driving those costs down, and an institutionally priced retirement plan, even of a modest size, more often than not, is going to have a lower price tag on it at the for the assets than an individual retirement arrangement. Okay, that's right, right? I think there is some coalescence around that. I think the fiduciary oversight and 40 plus years of ERISA, I think that also shows up actually surprisingly more so with plan sponsors than with advisors and consultants, but it shows. The interesting, the other, the the, the second city in the tale of two cities, look at the bottom. If, if in fact you do believe that low cost is a reason why a participant would consider staying in a plan, what are you doing about it? And the bottom of this chart shows it's not nearly as much as you would expect, right? So on the left-hand side, that big, tall green bar is what percent of plans are at least making people aware that they can stay in plan and some vague, you know, uh, details about that option. Three out of four plans are doing that. But go over to the middle and you'll see uh, assess, assess relative costs. And less than one in five plans are actually taking action to say, if you stay in the plan, you're going to have lower cost investment options, likely have lower cost investment options than if you go out to an IRA. So yeah. opportunity truly from a DC advisory standpoint or consulting standpoint to work with plan sponsors to say, if in fact you do believe X costs are lower, then what can we do Y to make that more actionable for your plan and for your participants? Well, and I think the where the calculus really comes down to is well, what services are you comparing? Like advisors aren't going to be delivering like their private wealth, comprehensive planning services in plan to participants, in my opinion. Um, that's, you're, you're really comparing kind of apples and oranges. So if you just look at the investment component, yeah, maybe costs are lower, um, but are you getting kind of the same services and what, and that's, you know, you look at the, the, you know, the DOL, you know, rollover rule and now starting to bring, you know, bring, uh, bring transparency. It's been interesting. I've been talking to, you know, private wealth firms. Um, I'm actually 
developing a, a based on some advisor feedback um, that'll be out in a couple of weeks is a, a DOL um, kind of rollover compliance tool. Um, but I've been telling private wealth advisors like you've been you haven't been living under fee, you know, disclosure uh, for the past you know, 10 years, like retirement plan advisors, like we're very comfortable talking about fees to clients. Um, it's going to be a whole new ball game for you now when you have to start doing, you know, a comparative analysis and whatnot and having kind of those conversations. So it'll be interesting to, you know, it really comes down to, I think, what services are pr being provided, not just the pure cost, you know, without any other uh, uh, mitigating factors, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, I applaud two things. One, your effort to try to build tools and resources for advisors to have a more healthy conversation there. And two, thinking about this looking forward in a very different, with a very different lens than how we've looked back, right? Because I, I do believe that a big chunk of that upswing in people staying in plan is already that issue of exposing kind of fee disclosure versus less transparency. And if you're thinking about a value proposition based on a broad set of services, Advisors should be confident and be front-footed in that process to articulate all those other things that yeah. they do. That why have 98% plus of most retirement income portfolios been in the IRA market? Because of all those other services that don't show up when you just do a pure fee comparison on the investment products. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very few private wealth advisors like to talk about fees. They haven't really been pressed on it. If they do, it's, you know, basis points, not kind of dollars or whatnot. But I would just say in general, like, you know, transparency creates trust. That would be my advice for advisors. Obviously, a lot of retirement advisors are used to doing this, but transparency creates trust and lack of transparency destroys it. So, you know, you better, yeah, my argument is always like, I want to, I want to be proactive on those conversations not reactive. I want to control that narrative. I don't want to be on the defensive against it. So um, another element is that the interesting data, um, and this is actually comes from participants, uh, when it comes to tools and education and guidance, what are you seeing uh, from this data in terms of what participants are actually interested in and asking for? Yeah, I think this one's a, a very interesting one. I'm going to jump out in front of the data. If you look at it, it is not segmented by age. We have looked at it by age. And interestingly enough, there's not a big difference. Most people would assume that this would fluctuate between older population and younger. We have seen a fair consistency. I think the digital age is upon us all. And I think what I'm sensing by the way our participants, and again, there were 2,000 of them that we interview every summer, and ask these questions of. So it's a significant data pool. Um, almost everybody, again, regardless of age, regardless of income level, begins their journey at figuring out what they need from a financial planning standpoint with tools and resources, independent of talking to an individual, right? I think that's the first takeaway I have from this slide and the data that we found. Retirement is still front of mind for them. How, am I going to have enough money when it's time to take the gold watch and sit on the rocking chair? Um, and the exploratory way in which I'm going to evaluate that is going to start with some self-service tools, even some education. And I think this was facilitated even more so by the pandemic. We saw huge upticks in 
digital consumption of education materials during the pandemic, right? For all the painful reasons of job loss or maybe hour reduction or just all of the stuff that we saw happen in the early pandemic. And, and then still shows that a, a big chunk of people, not the majority, but a big chunk of people are interested in that personal face-to-face -face guidance of one-on-ones, but only at the right time in the right place. Uh, you know, you, I've even heard stories in focus groups where people are afraid to engage because they're afraid they'll look dumb. They don't even know the right questions to ask. Well, I think why you see these digital resources on the left is they're trying to get some baseline and they're trying to get themselves a little bit smarter. And I think that, again, that is happening. I, I, I think that uh, the silver lining of the pandemic is that people had a you know pretty shocking wake up call. You, we've always heard the stories about people can't come up with X hundred dollars for an emergency expense. I think that kind of came home to roost. Mm. And you've seen all the debt pay down statistics that have come out of the news since then. I think that manifests itself here. And I think you've got people that are trying to make themselves more healthy financially on a broad on a broad basis. Yeah, this this was, uh, you know, it's interesting. I did a study uh, at Green Spring, surveyed, uh, had almost 2000 people completed as well. And we were talking before we started recording and I was kind of we were kind of comparing the data very, very similar um, in terms of like highest preference for, you know, tools and resources. Um, and then kind of this move, you know, uh, to guidance, to advice uh, as well and really you know, making sure it's not kind of a, you know, an either or, but really having kind of a, a suite that's available, uh, a suite of resources that are available so that people can interact and engage in a way that is more personalized to them. In my data, what was really interesting was actually uh, people under 35 expressed the highest interest in one-to-one -one meetings, even higher than people that were, um, you know, 55 and above, which fascinated me because you, you, you hear all about how like younger folks just want like digital and it's like, no, they expressed a much higher interest in one-to-one -one kind of face-to-face. -face. So really, really interesting. I think this data kind of supports why you're seeing more advisory firms getting into and saying, hey, we're really going to try to ha use our participant services, engagement experience as really kind of a tip of the spear for us. What um, what about some non-traditional, right, outside of retirement? Um, you've got some interesting data here around uh, things like HSAs and student debt programs and emergency savings. Like, what are you seeing out there uh, from that standpoint? Yeah, I think another, um, I'll call it silver lining of the storm clouds of the pandemic was taking this nebulous term of financial wellness, which there were probably as many definitions as there are people in the room having the conversation and and having a few things pop and move forward that look more specific as far as products and services that could be offered that would help people be more financially well. Right. And and the first one that popped up and we've said this a couple of times on this call, um, what's old is new again. Right. It's, it's not like HSAs are this new thing. Right. They've been out there for decades now technically, but it does look like in the spirit of pulling all the levers that an advisor or consultant can pull to help a plan sponsor help their participants more broadly be financial well, HSAs are big and I think they're accelerating, right? I mean, there's the, there's the logic of all the triple tax-free nature and what that can do to help people 
have money for the single biggest expense they might have in retirement, which is healthcare. So I think that is there. And I think from an advisor standpoint, I think people are seeing there's a pivot going on from health savings accounts, maybe historically being more health spending accounts. And now it looks like they're starting to accumulate assets and doing lineup analysis and comparing them to the DC plan. There's all kinds of advisor opportunities inside there. It does look like the, you know, the, the upswing continues to accelerate on HSAs. The two new shiny toys in this space, I think, are student debt, right? Since the Abbott Labs letter came out, you know, several years back, people have been saying, what role do student debt services play? And can we play with the match? Can we do other financial things to make the power of the workplace retirement savings work beyond just saving for retirement? Because we all know that debt payments are going to take away from retirement savings. Student debt now looks like it's firmly taken hold. It wasn't just a flash in the pan. Uh, more and more of the advisors and consultants we talk to are deploying some kind of specific debt payment services, if not in the DC plan, akin to it in a way that it looks like from a user experience standpoint that it's integrated. So I think there's there's movement there. You can see the data proves that, that a lot of uh, these firms are are pursuing that. And then the other one is emergency savings, right? I think that if you think about it, that one's probably been at the top of the list from a Washington, D.C. perspective. How do we help people yeah. get better? Can we use the power of negative election and payroll deduction, which is clearly proven that it's made people more healthy from a retirement savings standpoint? Can we leverage some of that same framework and apply it toward emergency savings? All kinds of raging debate about whether or not it can be within the DC plan or not. I mean, we could get into all kinds of arguments on that technically, but thinking about it as an offer that's packaged up and bundled from an integrated standpoint in a financial wellness offering seems like it's a foregone conclusion now that that one's got some traction too and it looks like it's growing. And this, these things here could be, I would imagine that broadening of service offerings that advisory, advisory firms and consulting firms are thinking about doing. How do we you know, um, how do we do more for clients? Um, you know, and maybe part of it is a, uh, you know, there's a revenue enhancement element to it, or more. It may just be we want to make these relationships more sticky, show more value. If we do, we're less inclined to potentially. You know, we certainly meet the needs of everybody, but strategically, we're going to be less inclined to you know, getting kicked out because we're not doing enough or letting one of our competitors kind of get in and then, you know, uh, you know, nudge us out at some point in time or, or, you know, make it way more competitive for us than we need it to be. With the vast majority of these 38 firms we talked to under that broadened service offering, something under this financial wellness umbrella was clearly part of their intent, right? right. There's more to it than that. There's stock plan. There's, you know, those right. retirement income and managed account products we talked about earlier. But this played a key role in a lot of those firms' decisions on how to broaden their offering. Right. All right. So let's, our kind of last point as we wrap, um, just talking about, you know, wellness solutions. That seems to be the most adjacent um, for especially advisors and advisory firms, adjacent solution and really kind of bridge between, you know, plan and wealth if convergence is something that is a kind of a key strategic priority for firms. Um, I thought this was just fascinating. Um, and I actually, it, it just in terms of consultant firms who offer financial wellness solutions, um, 
you know, uh, versus, you know, advisory firms and why that may be you're seeing consulting firms see advisory firms kind of show up more in their traditional, you know, relationships. Yeah, I think that's right, Josh. One of my personal experiences throughout the pandemic was the firms that looked like they were bouncing back the quickest and recovering and getting back on their feet were the ones that were talking more broad than just retirement savings. They were talking about leading to better outcomes and overall financial wellness solutions. And when we asked the question up front of all 38 of these firms, are you doing something in the financial wellness space? The answer was the vast majority had said yes. But as we poked in a little bit deeper, the offer from more of the traditional consulting firms was, we're going to help you, Joe or Jane, plan sponsor, figure out whether or not that record-keeping platform's financial wellness offering aligns to your needs, or maybe even go to a third party like a financial finesse or others and, and see if those products uh, meet your needs. Almost all of the firms, consulting and advisory otherwise, said yes to that question. But when asked a very specific question, are you going to offer your own proprietary financial wellness solutions wrapped around the retirement plan you're administering? That's where the big divide on the right-hand side of this chart manifested or showed itself. Almost all the advisory firms answered affirmative to that question. Almost none of the consulting firms answered affirmative to that question. So, again, back to the change in competitive landscape, whether it's moving up market or moving down market, you can put that aside and say it doesn't matter. Change to the product offering, right, in a, in a more broad definition yeah. of the solutions you can bring to the table. It looks like there's a very, very different approach to this marketplace, at least currently speaking, from traditionally advisory firms to traditionally consultant-oriented firms. Yeah, and, and and I think what this also from you know from advisory firms again the lines blurring, but advisory firms want to own the. Um, I don't like I, there's you hear a lot around like who owns the participant. Like I hate that. I you know nobody owns the participant, but clearly advisory firms want to own the participant experience. Um, and you've got this interesting thing going on now, like this, I've talked about it before, but this real frenemy thing going on, you've got, you know, a lot of the, the, the larger record keepers that they're looking at all this data and saying, Hey, how do we keep, you know, assets on book or how do we drive additional kind of, you know, revenue, um, especially in the era of probably declining margins or, or fee compression and whatnot. And so you've got these, these, you know, record keepers who, are trying to deliver their own, you know, um, participant advisory services and, and kind of that experience. And now advisory firms that have, you know, wealth units are saying, whoa, hold on a second. And I, I think as you, you continue to probably see this play out, it's going to be in some cases, you know, an advisory firm, even if they have their own wellness solution, may let a record keeper with their own solution lead because maybe the demographics of the plan aren't very good for like private wealth perspective. I think in other cases, you're gonna get advisor advisory firms that are saying, hey, back off, like we really, really want this. And if they've got the institutional scale, those record keepers are probably gonna be more inclined to you know, play nice in the sandbox around that um, just because of the institutional relationship. And then I think in some cases, and I know this is how we kind of used to handle it um, when I had my firm was like, you know, to the record keeper, like, great. You guys tell your story, we'll tell our story. And, 
you know, let the best story win and we'll kind of, you know, we'll kind of duke it out and let participants kind of choose with who they go to for advice. Is that what you're kind of seeing out in the yeah. marketplace as well? Absolutely, Josh. And I couldn't agree more. I hate the own the participant language. It's just horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, but if you do think about the entire symbiotic relationship of all the members of the food chain that service the retirement industry, whether it's the advisory firms or the record keeping platforms or um, any other influencer and player in there, it's a symbiotic relationship. And I think the one where the real momentum is right now is where people figured out what I can do versus what you can do and how we can do that together and respectfully do it in a way where the, the you know, competition exists, right? Any good record keeping platform now has got a great, you know, financial wellness offering. Uh, we like to think some better than others, hint, hint. Um, but doing it in tandem with key client relationships, whether that be an advisory firm or a consulting firm, and make sure we know how the uh, offer manifests itself in an integrated, simple, friendly way at the plan sponsor and the participant level right. makes all the difference in the world. And it does look like there's great momentum on the uh, frenemy front on that front right. in the industry. So, Right. Well, um, you know, as we wrap, Michael, this is, this has been, uh, I always love talking to you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, a data and research geek. And I, I just, I love the work that you do. Um, you know, I love the, uh, your ability to pull out, not just the data, but, but, you know, the, the, um, uh, the ability to kind of draw the conclusions and see where things are going. Um, you guys put out a T row, uh, you know, I used to in, 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 you know, my books I've referenced you and a lot of my, when I, um, uh, have always kind of, tried to educate, you know, my core audience, whatever that looks like. I've, I've relied a lot on the data that you guys uh, have created and, and um, just kudos to you. I think every advisory firm um, consultant should be looking at this data um, to really kind of see, you know, what's happening and what's over the horizon so they can get positioned to know how best to deal with whatever, you know, might come their way. So what would be your number one kind of, if you look at all of this, what would be your single best piece of advice to advisory firms and consultants about the current, current environment? Like what should they be thinking about at a kind of strategic practice management level? Well, first of all, Josh, thank you. I also enjoy our conversations. A lot of, uh, creative sparks fly when we have these kinds of dialogue. And I think the more the industry can participate in them, the better. The key takeaway, I think, is there's there's a, a bunch of forces at play here that we sometimes treat as individual and discrete forces. But the better you can take a step back and look at them as overlapping or symbiotic or integrated, the better I think you're going to be as an advisor managing your practice and your relationships with your not only plan sponsor clients, but uh, individual investor and participant clients. Um, the examples are numerous in this conversation. Retirement income and managed accounts, are those discrete forces at play or are they overlapping and integrated? Is the change in the competitive landscape a cause or an effect? What's going on with financial wellness in this term convergence we always talk about? How much do they manifest themselves out in the marketplace in the way we think about products and services coming to market? taking them holistically and looking at them as best you can in a, with a strategic lens on the impact it's going to have on your book of business 
and more importantly, where your future book of business is going to come from or how you're going to retain what you've got, I think drives a holistic view, which I think will make you worry less about the individual forces at play, like price compression, and think more about the holistic value proposition you have to the marketplace, because it is clearly a dynamic one. Right. I, I think that's, I think that is great advice. So, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Great conversation. Uh, I'll make sure to put links to, um, you know, this report and then your other thought leadership resources um, in the show notes. But I've really enjoyed our conversation and uh, always appreciate uh, the vantage point that, uh, that you have in the industry. Thanks, Josh. Great time together. Thanks for listening to part two of today's episode with Michael Dozier from T. Rowe Price. If you're a retirement plan advisor that wants to visualize and gamify your consulting process for your prospects and clients, and you haven't checked out Fiduciary Rx yet, head over to www.fiduciaryworks.com and book a demo. I promise you, you'll be glad you did. Also, if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a great fit for the show or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. And finally, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast.